The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this today, but I got a bunch of emails from people since Joe Biden was sworn in about what is likely to happen from the standpoint of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial, which we still don't know when it will actually uh, take place. But I think it makes sense just as a reminder that, yes, Donald Trump was impeached a second time before leaving office in the House of Representatives. Yes, it will be up to the Senate to uh, vote uh, to either convict or acquit in a trial that is going to take place at some point in time. And it bears mentioning that Republican support for convicting Donald Trump in the Senate trial grew over the last few days of Trump's administration and during the first few days of Joe Biden's. There is a Politico a morning consult poll released earlier this week where about 20 percent of Republicans now say they either strongly or somewhat approve of conviction of Donald Trump. Uh, that's up from the previous poll where only 14 percent of Republicans said the same thing. So support for conviction among Republican voters is up, but most Republicans are still against conviction. And of course, it remains to be seen to what degree Republicans continue to stand behind the now former president, Donald Trump. Um, it's very partisan still. Eighty six percent of Democrats approve of a conviction. Uh, Fifty percent of independents strongly or somewhat approve of a conviction. And again, 20 percent of Republicans. But really what it's going to come down to uh, are Republican uh, senators. And it is mere speculation at this point. Would Mitt Romney vote to convict? Mitt Romney voted to convict on one of two counts in Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Mitch McConnell reportedly was pleased with the impeachment of Trump, meaning what the House of Representatives did, uh, presumably believed to be because it allowed the Republican Party to try to create distance between itself and the then outgoing now former president. But just because Mitch McConnell is pleased that Trump was impeached in the House doesn't mean Mitch McConnell has any plan to vote to convict uh, during the Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump. So it simply has to happen now. A, a few just very, very uh, basic ideas about this. Some have floated the idea that we forget about the impeachment trial. I think this would be a disaster um, if you do a uh, if you, if the House impeaches, they did it because they felt they had to. That's the way impeachment is supposed to work. It's a responsibility. If a president does something worthy of impeachment, then you impeach. It would send a very bad signal about the merely political motivations, which the, the, the motivations are Trump did something impeachable. It will not look good if you do the impeachment in the House and then never do the trial. I think that that would be an absolute disaster and it opens up the door um, to impeachment becoming a much more political thing. You know, when Marjorie Taylor Greene, that kooky QAnon congresswoman said, uh, I'm going to uh, write up articles of impeachment for Joe Biden before Biden was even sworn in. That's the type of stuff that will start to seem more on the level of what happened to Donald Trump in the House a week and a half ago. If uh, there is no trial, there must be a trial. The full process must take place in terms of when I actually think sooner is better. I think the longer you wait, the more the, ch the the lower the chance of a conviction goes. So I would like to see it soon. The Senate can walk and chew gum at the same time. Joe Biden can get things done even while uh, an impeachment trial is going on. That's my view. I'd love to hear from you. 
A Shepard Smith gave a very interesting interview to Christiana Manpour the other day. Shepard Smith, former Fox News anchor for a long time, was like the sole voice of reason on Fox News. And when he was there, we wondered, does Shep understand what he's doing? Does he understand the context of crazy in which he is offering something that looks more like the news on Fox News Channel. And this interview he gave to Christian Amanpour is fascinating, and it confirms that Shep Smith was very much aware of what he was doing there. And um, he said that a lot of his presence on, on Fox News was specifically to serve as a counterpoint to the wackiness of what we were seeing on Fox News. He called it injurious to society what was happening there. And, uh, you know, this plays into our discussion about the future of right wing media in the post Trump era. Smith says in this interview that the falsehoods from his colleagues on Fox News eventually became too much to bear, but that his point was to inject reality. Take a look at this. I thought it was important that I stay there because I knew that I was grounded in that philosophy and and working toward that promise. And if you feel like the Fox viewers were getting miss or disinformation. I was there to make sure that they got it straight. There were a lot of others in there who were trying to do the same thing. But I thought to just abandon it uh, and to deprive those viewers of, it wasn't just me, I mean, there's an entire team of people getting the news to the air, to, to deny them that with the thought that they might replace it with opinion instead seemed a little selfish. This is actually very interesting. Uh, staying at Fox News because if you leave, they replace you with someone worse. We applied that same thought to the Trump administration in many cases. We said, you know, Fauci clearly is disgusted with what's going on. But if he quits and they replace him with someone even worse, is the country better off or worse off? And that that's the exact analysis that Shep says he was doing when at Fox News. Christian Amanpour then asks whether Shep Smith accepts that Fox perpetuates division and perpetuates lies. And Shep gives a very interesting answer. I want to play the entire thing for you. And and I don't know, you know, you, you can be proud of what you did, but I wonder whether you also feel now that you're at CNBC, you see how a whole different ecosystem works. Um, whether you accept that Fox News uh, in the opinion sphere and, you know, in other Rupert Murdoch enterprises, you know, perpetuated so many of the divisions, the lies, the conspiracies, um, the support. Look at Sean Hannity going up and, you know, doing campaign rallies for President Trump. So blurring the lines as to be the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. I just wonder what, what you think about that now. Well, I, I feel the same way about that now that I did then. And my goal was to just keep the blinders on and do my job to the best of my ability. And was I, I'm always concerned when people want, opine all you like, but if you're going to opine, begin with the truth and opine from there. And it's that, that deviation from that that has, has caused me the greatest concern. And I, and I believe that when people begin with a false premise and lead people astray, that's injurious to society. And it's, the, and it's the antithesis of what we should be doing. Those of us who are so honored and, and uh, grateful to have a platform of influence ha have to use it for, for the public good. And, and I slept very well. I don't know how some people sleep at night because I know that there are a lot of people who, 
who have propagated the lies and have pushed them forward over and over again, who are smart enough and educated enough to know better. And I, I, I hope that at some point, mm -hmm. those who have done us harm as a nation, and I might even add as a world, will look around and, and realize what they've done. But I'm not holding my breath. So that's a really interesting interview. And from the outside, we didn't know what Shep's perception was of what he was doing. And some say Shep was still bad because he was on a network generating them profits, which were then funneled into continuing the disinformation. And I sympathize with that. Shep was a cog in the wheel. And you could even make the case that Shep provided cover to Fox News. You could say Shep being there one hour a day, five days a week, provided cover to Fox to say, no, 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 we have all sorts of different perspectives. Um, but the reality is, you know, Fox would exist either way. And if you want to say, are we better off with Fox having one hour of Shep Smith versus zero or replacing Shep with someone worse? Yeah. You know, I mean, he Shep knew what Fox was every time he was cashing the checks. And um, I don't know what that means if Shep's goal was to provide a counter narrative, which he did. He could have left earlier and gotten the same paycheck elsewhere. And in fact, now he's getting the paycheck at CNBC. It's not that clear to me that Shep did something wrong by staying when he was providing a counterpoint. Now, another perspective is he should be credited for remaining true to his role despite so many people around him at Fox News selling themselves out and that his responsibility was to stay as long as possible and for for as long as Fox would allow him to stay and not fire him, which they ultimately didn't. Ultimately, he quit, although maybe he was pressured. We don't know. He's doing a good thing. And um, I, I can sympathize with different perspectives on this. But I think much like with the Fauci example, if Fauci quit when Trump talked about injecting bleach and started attacking Fauci publicly. If Fauci quits, then he's replaced with someone that is probably going to do far more damage and probably lead to even more deaths than we've already seen during the coronavirus pandemic. So Fauci stayed and it was probably the right thing to do uh, much the same way. I think on balance, we are better off that Shep stayed longer rather than leaving and being replaced with, you know, imagine if Shep leaves a year and a half ago or whenever it was and they replace him with Maria Bartiromo. The country's worse off. There's no question about it. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. You can find me on Twitter at D and we have a fantastic Friday show planned for you today. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors today is Nebia, the creator of the world's most innovative showerhead. It uses only about half the water that other showerheads do, saving you money, helping the environment. But it's actually a lot more powerful than other showerheads on the market. It has twice the coverage of other showerheads. The water sprays with a ton of pressure. I've been using it in my bathroom at home. I love it. Only took a few minutes to set up really easy. And it's been a totally different experience than any other showerhead I've used. I can get in and out of the shower way quicker now because of how powerful it is. It only takes a few seconds to get completely rinsed off. So I was actually amazed that it's only using about half as much water. Nebia also offers a number of shower accessories like shelves and curtains, which match perfectly with the design of the showerhead. 
The shower head is just one ninety nine, but you'll get 15 percent off when you go to nebbia.com slash Pacman pod and use coupon code Pacman pod. That's N E B I A dot com slash P A K M A N P O D and use coupon code Pacman pod for 15 percent off. And you can find the URL in the podcast notes. One of our sponsors today is Trivia Star, a free trivia game for mobile devices with over 60 different trivia categories, including things I know you would love like geography, history, science, many other great topics, movies, sports, food. I've been having a bunch of fun with it because I, as the player, get to choose the categories. So I'm only answering questions on topics I'm interested in. There are over a thousand different levels to progress to over 10,000 different questions, which get harder over time. So it gets more and more interesting as you play. If you love trivia like I do, I remember the days pre virus of going out to trivia at a bar and you want a fun way to keep yourself sharp. Check it out. Really well designed game. Four point nine star rating and the number one rated mobile trivia game in the world. It's totally free. Just go to the Apple and Android app store and search for trivia star. The David Pakman show at David All right. It's been a very, very big week. And much has happened. We have a new president. We have a new vice president. Donald Trump fled Washington, D.C. in shame on Wednesday. Um, All very exciting. And many people want to comment. So let's go to what we call the phone lines, even though they're really more like Internet tubes at discord. David slash discord. Let's go to our friend Scott from Pensacola, even though every time I, I the last time we went to Scott from Pensacola, I have a friend Scott in Pensacola. He's never actually called in. It's some other Scott in Pensacola. Scott in Pensacola, you're on the air. Yes, you got me. Yeah. Excellent. So the inauguration yesterday, um, what do you make about uh, them? I guess the people on the right um, crying about how Garth Brooks decided that he wanted to show up for Joe Biden, but had a scheduling conflict last time. I couldn't care less. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I mentioned this during the live stream earlier this week of the inauguration where in 26 in 2017, Trump wanted Garth Brooks and Garth Brooks said, sorry, I have a a scheduling conflict. And it wasn't really clear whether he did. And then Garth Brooks was invited this week and he said, I'm doing it and I'm doing it as a unity statement, not as a political statement. And of course, many of us wondered, was it really a scheduling conflict in 2017 or did he simply not want anything to do with with Donald Trump? I don't know the answer, but to the extent that right wingers are focused on it, I don't care. It's such a minor issue. Do you think he was successful in making a unity statement with it? I th- was Garth Brooks successful or was the Biden inaugural a, a, a strong unity statement? Uh, the inaugural more so. Yeah, I mean, I listen here. Here's the thing. Joe Biden did so much more on Wednesday than he anyone deserved given the divisive and weaponized disinformation nature of the last four years. Now, given that Biden did it, 
Is it likely that we're now going to have unity with these obstructionist Republicans? No, but Biden did it just because it won't work because the Republicans won't go for it. Doesn't mean Biden was wrong to say, let's come together and I'm everybody's president. So I think Biden did a good job. I don't think it'll go anywhere. And one last question before I'll let you go. What do you think just sort of as a a normal person um, I can do or generally people in the audience can do to kind of keep um, colleagues or friends from sort of tuning out and going to brunch, as I've heard it put. I mean, I think I think the, the most important message is nothing's happened yet. Biden now can do stuff, but nothing's happened yet. And of course, he's gotten some executive orders done, so things are starting to happen. But I think the message needs to be The last four years, we didn't even have a shot at getting anything done. Now we have a shot at getting things done. But imagine that whenever you get the ball back in football, you stop playing because you think you score points by getting the ball. You would be very wrong. Once you get the ball, you've got to score the points. That's where we are now. Gotcha. Well, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Scott from Pensacola. Always great to hear from our friends in Pensacola. Let's go next to Aaron from California. Aaron, you're on the air. Aaron from California, you're on the air. Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, awesome. Well, my question is kind of like a bit more broad, I guess, because so after obviously, I mean, we can all agree, like the last two, three months has been like an insane amount of like just pure disinformation from the Republican Party yeah. across the board. So I'm wondering, obviously, this is kind of a long shot, but like, would it be possible for like a type of regulation that we kind of say like, hey, like all X types of like new upcoming social media companies are established You to have like either like a chief scientific officer or like some type of panel on these companies that goes through like what's in the media, what's being what's being spoken about and reported and see like what is the obvious types of disinformation that like these companies can try and stop? No, I don't see any shot at that whatsoever. I don't think there's any legal basis for it. And I also don't think it's the right way to fight disinformation. I've said this before in different formats or, or it, with different framings. And I'll say it again. The solution to disinformation, conspiracy theories, anti-science, anti-vax, delusional QAnon, Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Alex Jones to all that stuff. The solution is uh, better educated people teaching media literacy early, creating a culture where people have a healthy skepticism when they are given information by something that maybe the news or maybe just looks like news. I don't think that we I, I just I don't believe and I've seen no evidence that we can regulate our way out of the disinformation ignorance crisis. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, because I think the big thing is like, I mean, we've seen like just everything escalate in terms of disinformation so, so exponentially over the last few years that it feels like, at least to me, but I don't know, like, obviously, yeah, we could, I definitely agree with the route of like educating the populace over time, but it feels like there's so many people that it would take so long. It would. And that here's the thing. Here's the thing. It took four. I've been I've been repeating this a lot because it's important to understand. It took 40 years for things to get this bad. It's going to take a long time to fix it. And and we have to be OK with that. We just have to improve because the only way you you 
quickly change something as big as what you're talking about is via dictatorship. And we don't want to be a dictatorship. And so I think we just have to concede it's going to take a while to fix this. And that's it. It's not that it's okay. We'd rather fix it more quickly, but we don't really have a choice in a democracy. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, There is uh, another perfect phone call, for lack of a better term. Let's go next to. Oh, there's just so many people that want to get on here. Why don't we go to. Is it Mari or Marie from the San Francisco Bay Area? Mari or Marie, please unmute yourself and then I'll be able to talk to you. Mari or Marie, please unmute. You were on the air and this is the last chance. All right. Mari or Marie is donezo. Let's go to Logan from San Jose, California. Logan, you're on the air. Hi. uh, Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Thanks, David. I'm also from the Bay Area, so I'll I'll make up for the last person. Beautiful. Um, My question is on the uh, Joe Biden's covid relief bill. Yes. I noticed there was the fifteen dollar minimum wage added in there. I'm kind of wondering the purpose of that, because it doesn't seem like now's the right time with small businesses already looking to make payroll or not being able to make payroll. And uh, it seems like it's only going to slow down a time sensitive bill. You know, I didn't see that. Let me see. Um, let's see here. Biden. Stim- I didn't know that that was part of Biden's stimulus. Let me take a look. I'm pulling up an article about that. Biden uh, called for a rescue package of one point nine trillion. And we have all of the the things increasing the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars per hour. Oh, that's interesting. You know, it's not it's not clear to me that he's calling for that to be in the bill. And quite frankly, I don't even know if you can do it that way. Uh, but I'd, ha- I'd have to look into that more. That's it's an interesting question. I didn't think I thought he was saying part of my economic plan is a fifteen dollar minimum wage. I didn't think he wanted that literally in the covid rescue bill. Okay, uh, you know, I admittedly didn't look uh, too closely at it. I, I thought it was a part of it, but I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Right. I know it was part of his presentation, but there, that's a really good question, whether you would include a minimum wage change in the bill. And listen, let me put it this way. Even if he is thinking of putting a minimum wage of fifteen dollars in the covid relief bill, that's going to be negotiated out. It's not going to get passed as part of covid relief that I can assure you. Got it. Got it. Um, One other quick question. I noticed uh, today in the inaugural address and Joe Biden's been really pushing for for unity, you know, reaching across the aisle and between parties. I'm wondering what that what's that going to look like in your opinion? Oh, it's a complete impossibility. I I mean, I think it's great that Joe Biden is using this language and to the extent that it will appeal to voters to hear Joe Biden say, even after all this, I'm everybody's president. I think that's great. Um, how are you going to have unity with Mitch McConnell, uh, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene? You know, th- there's just no way there's no it's just not going to happen. But I think Biden's doing the right thing by saying it, because until they show him they will be obstructionists, Biden should mm-hmm. go forward saying, let's work together and then we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's uh, that's I, I wasn't sure how it was possible. So yeah, just no, it's not. Thoughts. It's not. But it's good for Biden to say it. All right. That's all I got for you today, David. Thanks. All right. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
Um, let's see. We're hearing from so many different people here. Uh, why don't we go to uh, Skyler from New York? Skyler from New York, you're on the air. Hey, David, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Awesome. So uh, I was wondering, obviously, for the better part of a year, we've been talking about let's just get the ball back, let's just have Biden win, and then we can push him left. Uh, how do we make the next four years productive in that we're not just comparing everything Biden does to what Trump did? But to actually push him left and pressure him and educate people to vote in, in more of their best interests. Well, the first step is we have to compare Biden to his campaign promises. And you're absolutely right that if we simply say this is how it compares to Trump, everything will essentially be better. Maybe we'll stumble across something where we say, wow, Biden somehow is even worse than Trump on this one issue. I, I think those issues will be few and far between, if any. But I think the first step, step is. We as progressive media have to remind the audience not just about what Trump would have done, but what did Biden promise? That's the start. And if if we forget that, then we don't stand a chance. And then beyond that, obviously, with the midterms uh, and hopefully growing influence for the progressive caucus in the House of Representatives, there will be a continued pressure on on Joe Biden. But the, the most important thing is let's keep let's hold Joe Biden accountable to his own promises. Yeah, because like I've already seen when it comes to like people he's named in his cabinet or the way that he's gone about just like trying to work with Republicans that he's already getting a lot of pushback from the left. And then I'm also seeing like, guys, let him actually be president for a week before we start criticizing him. Yeah. So and on, it, on working with Republicans, I think all there is so far to criticize is that what is there to criticize? Biden has said he wants unity and he looks forward to making progress with his friends across the aisle, like he likes to say. There's nothing wrong with him saying that. It's naive if he thinks he's going to do it because they're not going to. They will be obstructionist clowns. But I think it's silly to criticize Biden for saying it. I think what Biden would be wrong to do is to think that he'll be able to negotiate with these people when they when he won't. But so far, I don't I don't think there's any criticism that would be levied just for Biden saying he's going to try it. I think it's great to say, let's try to work together and get things done as long as he doesn't end up compromising on what he campaigned on. Yeah, I just don't know the most productive way to raise the bar, because if you look at the Obama administration, it's easy to compare it to George W. Bush and say Obama did a tremendous job. But obviously, if that was the case, it wouldn't have led to the election of Trump. Well, that's why I think it's remember on paper, Biden's campaign platform is well to the left of Obama's. I, I would argue that Joe Biden's platform and his campaign promises are the most progressive of any president that has become president. Now we have to hold him to them. If we do, if Biden does the stuff he promised, then we're going to be moving the Overton window left. If Biden comes back from his promises and just operates as a centrist, then we're going to be extraordinarily disappointed. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess, you know, all we could do at this point is wait and see and make our voices heard in the most productive way possible. Absolutely. And make your voices heard through your your, your local representatives. Uh, by, by, I mean, your members of the House and Senate that represent where you live. Yeah, well, thankfully, my representative is centered Kathleen Rice, so I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> OK, yeah, that's an uphill battle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you All so right, much, my friend. Sir. Thank you so much. Uh, let's take a quick break. If you're holding, don't hang up because we're going right back to the discord tubes for more phone calls in a moment. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. 
I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19. And they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell. And that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. When you see me sitting here at the microphone, oftentimes I'm wearing a shirt by a company called Teddy Stratford. And I love these shirts so much that I asked Teddy Stratford to be a sponsor of the show. And here's why I like their shirts so much. With other slim fit button up shirts, you often get this weird looking gap between the buttons where it looks kind of stretched out. But Teddy Stratford actually has a patented zipper that's hidden underneath the buttons, which secures the shirt against your chest so it doesn't look stretched. And most importantly, it just provides a nicer looking fit overall. And the entire shirt is specially designed to really improve the way your upper body looks when you're wearing it. It also has a special type of collar that prevents it from drooping down and spreading open, which is another really great thing about these shirts. All of these things really do a lot to make a big difference when you're looking at a shirt. And that's why I like to wear Teddy Stratford shirts on the show. Go check them out at davidpackmancom slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15 percent off your first order if you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout. That's P-A-K-M-A-N. Welcome back to The David Pacman Show. Let's get back to hearing from you via discord at davidpackmancom slash discord. Let's go next to Adam from Los Angeles, California. Adam, you're on the air. Hey, David. Uh, so I actually wanted to ask about um, DACA and the Dreamers. Sure. Um, obviously, it's been a roller coaster for them. Um, and, you know, now with a slim majority in the House and Senate, how likely do you think it'll be for not only people who are in DACA, but people who maybe narrowly do not qualify um, to get some relief. I'm confident that the current DACA participants, current uh, participant doesn't seem like the right word. Those who currently qualify for DACA status, I think that in relatively short order, they are going to be taken care of. Now, in terms of expanding DACA to include more people, I think there's more of a question mark around that. And it's really too early for me to have a strong sense of of how likely it is that DACA will be expanded. Totally. Yeah, because I know even as recently as 2019, um, the the Dream Act um, obviously got blocked by Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Yeah. 
um, and didn't even be, it wasn't even brought to a vote, but I know the bill itself has always had bipartisan support. So hopefully, you know, something can happen there. You know, the, the, the disgusting reality is there are, despite bipartisan support, there are likely Republicans who may want to stand in the way merely to deny Joe Biden a, a, an accomplishment on this. And that's really sad because we're talking about people's lives being at stake here. Oh, yeah. It's, Livelihoods it's dis- may be better said. No, def- I, I think it's disgusting. And I guess the hope is that, um, you know, something can get done about that. You know, would they need um, any bipartisan support even to pass it? To you know, remove- that's a really interesting question. It It's without really reading more about it. I don't know how much can be done by simple majority, how much can be done by executive order and how much would need 60, 60 votes. And so I, I don't have an answer on that at this immediate moment. I think it's something I'm going to have to read up on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, David. My pleasure. Great to great to speak with you. Uh, we are hearing from folks via discord at davidpackmancom slash discord. Let's go. Where do we want to go next? Uh, why don't we go to Jason from Phoenix, Arizona next? Oh, and Jason, uh, Jason left. Um, oh, by the yeah, uh, very, very, very important. OK, let's let's go next to Sh- I believe it's Shannon from Japan. And I pr- am I pronouncing that correctly? Shannon from Japan. Caller from Japan, you're on the air. Japanese caller last opportunity. That's too bad. Would have been would have been interesting. Let's go next to Leishan from New York City. Leishan, you're on the air. Hey, David, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, in what ways do you think a president Joe Biden would be superior or inferior to a president Bernie Sanders? Oh, well, let's see. Inferior would be that Biden is to Bernie's uh, right and I am to Biden's left. And so I'm closer to Bernie than I am to Biden. And so from a personal standpoint, I think Bernie um, would would of course, be a more progressive president. And I would like a more progressive president than Joe Biden in terms of ways in which Biden may may uh, be superior to to Bernie. It really remains an open question. But the argument that's been made is Biden has the ability, despite not being as progressive, to accomplish more, both because Uh, of that very same reason that he's seen as less of an extreme leftist, although neither Bernie nor Biden are extreme leftists in any way whatsoever. Um, And maybe Biden's um, uh, historical alliances and relationships with the centrist wing of the Democratic Party, as well as moderate Republicans, could allow him to get more done. He won't get things done that are as progressive as what Biden as what Bernie would want to do. But Bernie being more progressive if he can't actually get things done is of of questionable use. That's the argument, right? And I'm not saying it's the right argument, but that's the argument that's being made. And we'll have four years now to figure it out. Okay. Uh, follow question. What big issues do you think Biden is going to be known for after he's out of office, whether it be infrastructure, foreign policy, et cetera? First of all, covid Covid, 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 as Donald Trump liked to say, I I think that um, if Joe Biden can navigate us out of this and we come out of it um, understanding the unrecoverable tragedy of the virus, but we come out of it with 
not only a stronger economy, but hopefully also with treatments or vaccinations for other conditions on the basis of the rapid advancement of the mRNA technology platform. Uh, and if if into that we can wrap up a green infrastructure deal, which Biden campaigned on, I think that those have huge potential to be Biden's legacies. And then, you know, you really never know. Right. When Trump was elected, nobody thought his legacy one way or the other would depend on a global pandemic. But in huge part, it has. So I think it's just too early to say beyond that. All right. Uh, also, how are you liking discord? Discord's great. Yeah, no, I, we, I love discord. All right, David, uh, great talking to you. All right. My pleasure. Uh, great. Great to hear from you. Um, OK, David dot com slash discord is where we are. Let's go to Alec from the United Kingdom. Alec, you're on the air. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Yes, that's you. Oh, <laughs> I literally just joined. They realized I'll be the first. <laughs> I will be the first up. Oh, sorry about that. Um. Hello. Yes, I'm from the UK. Um. I guess my question would be mainly about coming in because obviously Biden's in. Biden's just got in with Kamala. Um. Looking forward to 2022 with the. I think that, I'm not sure which seats go up. I think it'd be Congress and Senate, right? So for 2022, is there some third voice in the background right now when between you and I? It might be. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> so every two years, all 435 House seats are up for reelection and one third of Senate seats. So that's what's up yeah. in 2022. Oh, OK, so I guess the question would be, do you think do you think that Republicans would have a, like a high chance of reclaiming lots of their seats, especially after Trump's left the party? Or do I, you I did. I did a video about this, actually. Typically, when the when the White House switches party, the next midterm is bad for the winning party. Hmm. But I yeah. think that circumstances are very different this time. The Senate seats up for reelection aren't particularly bad for Democrats. And it's a real question. My hope is that a lot of these QAnon conspiracy theorists like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, my hope is that they will be one term flukes and that they will lose in 2022. So I think it's quite plausible that Democrats do OK in the midterms. OK, um, are there any um, moderate Republican seats up for grabs? Do you think um, Democrats have any chances of flipping those? Yeah, I, I don't have the Senate list in front of me and there's many in the House. But we'll we'll look at that in more detail as we get okay. closer to the midterms. No worries, man. Anyway, have a good show. Hey, but I'm curious, what are you what are you doing? Are you cooking or what are you working on right now? <laughs> I'm doing that. I mean, I just um, right now I'm just reading. Well, you're reading. reading okay. from, well, my dissertation. So All right, good. And nothing, you're, you're not nothing. in a you're not in a factory or anything. <laughs> it could be just how bad my microphone is. Okay. I'm using, I'm, I'm using a. I'm using um, head like basically some ear, got it earplugs and laptop mic, so that's probably why. <laughs> anyway, All right, I'm Alec, thank you so much. Scary. I appreciate the call. No worries. Okay. okay, thank you, David. Pleasure, absolute, uh, absolute, and complete, complete pleasure. Um, let's talk to a couple of other people. Why don't we? I mean, it's like we're here, right? Why? Why would we just end right now? Uh, let's go to Stephanie from London. Stephanie from London, you're on the air. Or no, I'm sorry. That's Stephanie from Long Island, not London. <laughs> sorry, Stephanie. Am I on? Yes, you're on, Stephanie. Oh, my God. Sorry. This is so surreal for me. Hi. <laughs> nice to verbally meet you. Pleasure. Um, 
Uh, I just wanted to get your opinion, um, just because uh, I've been hearing from a lot of like pundits, you know, that the Capitol riot was uh, similar to like 9-11 on how they felt, you know, with, um, you know, I guess a terrorist attack, um, you know, it, with considering, you know, the actions taken after 9-11 with like the Patriot Act. I guess I just wondered your opinion on um, you know, constitutional law. Um, like, so let me see if I can. I want to make sure I, I I've seen floating around that there are some folks who I guess really they seem more libertarian than anything else who who are warning that much like we got the Patriot Act after 9-11, that we might get something similar because of the Capitol riots. Is, is that what you mean, Stephanie? Yeah, um, you know, just everyone, at least the conservatives I've seen, have been complaining about their constitutional rights being violated, even though it's not technically a constitutional violation to lose book deals and uh, be kicked off Twitter. But I right. guess with the Patriot Act, um, you know, at what to what extent should um, you know constitutional law be? I guess waived uh, in, in sort of compromising national security. Well, it, it, it shouldn't and it's not. And uh, fo- so, so as you rightly point out, losing a book deal because of what you did on J- January 6th, as Josh Hawley did, that that's not a constitutional issue. It's not a free speech issue. It's nothing other than businesses making decisions. Um, when yeah. it comes to the FBI putting out wanted posters and saying, here's the people we're looking for. If you have information, let us know. There's no constitutional issue there. Um, that is something that's been around in the United States for hundreds of years, and, and it's no problem. Uh, fears of some kind of crackdown on privacy because of the J- January 6th riots aren't um, they're They're not misguided. I'm not seeing evidence that there are attempts to do that, Stephanie. So I would hesitate mm-hmm. before jumping too deep in that to see if mm-hmm. there's actually such attempts that are going to be made. I, I think that's kind of how I would categorize the different uh, follow on effects of the riots. Yeah, I guess I like considering like Joe Biden um, Chuck Schumer, like these are all like Democrats that, you know, were for the Patriot Act. I guess I just sort of am concerned that, you know, after te- acts of terrorism, you know, the Constitution could be used, like could sort of like, you know, be sort of go out the window. Yeah, the, in, the question the is a good one because security. that has happened in history. But remember yeah. that much of the right doesn't even see what happened on January 6th as terrorism. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that what is being uh, p- proposed as a possibility is actually going to happen. OK. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for um, speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Big fan. Thanks, Stephanie. Great <laughs> to hear from you. I, I appreciate it as well. Um, let's see who else we, we can talk to here. How about, oh, I don't know. Uh, there's some very interesting folks here. Why don't we go to Cooper from South Carolina? Uh, hello, David. Uh, it's my first time calling. Um, so I have a couple of concerns about Medicare for all. Okay. So with the current system, um, I want to go to a doctor appointment with a specialist doctor and it's going to take me like six months to uh, get seen because I'm on a waiting list. Okay. This is a real scenario. You're currently on a waiting list. That's a six month waiting list. Yeah. And what, what specialty is it? Dermatology? 
Um, no, it's actually a neurologist. Um, okay. I've been having some like uh, nerve issues. Um, so my fear is that in a system uh, that's Medicare for all, perhaps the wait times would be much longer. And I'm concerned that um, like, for example, if the wait list was like a year, a year and a half, like that would make the care a lot less valuable. Yeah. So um, I was wondering like, what what's what do you think about that? Yeah, I actually just did a video about this a week and a half ago called um, won't. What was it? Something like uh, won't Medicare for all mean everybody's going to try to get health care and it'll gum up the system. So there's a couple different things. First of all, uh, as you are pointing out, we already have wait lists and sometimes people have to wait for things. And so one aspect of this is when you change a system, some people still have to wait. It's sometimes different people than the ones that are waiting now. And ideally, wait would be commensurate with inversely related to the degree of urgency for the visit. That's that's number one. Um, number two, you also over the long term would be likely to reduce the need for specialist visits by treating a lot of things early. A lot of people now forego going to a primary care doctor at all because they either don't have insurance or don't want to pay their copay or whatever the case may be. So something that could be dealt with without a specialist early becomes a something that then you have to go to a specialist for. And so I think that it's not uh, these are complex issues. There's no question. And there's examples of when you expand access, you do uh, increase the demand at emergency rooms and it increases wait times. At emer there, there are examples of that. I'm not denying that. And these are complex issues. But generally speaking, generally speaking, it's it's much more nuanced than simply, well, if a lot more people have health care, the waiting list at every specialist will go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was thinking maybe um, at least for like uh, like you were saying, like the primary doctors, uh, maybe you could have a Medicare for all system for that, but then also have like a public option for like more of the specialty doctors, just so that way, like if you actually need to get seen for something, you might be able to. Move yeah, up I've never heard of Medicare for all plus public option. I've heard of Medicare for all plus private insurance for those who prefer it. I think in most systems, Medicare for all makes the public option not necessary, but uh, uh, that's something I, that would be interesting to look at. OK, thank you. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Very interesting questions. That's going to do it for us for today. But we will take calls again now in the Biden era. Thanks to everybody who joined me. We will take a quick break and be back with much more right after this. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors is Four Sigmatic, the company best known for their delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is organic, fair trade, single origin Arabica coffee with both lion's mane and chaga mushrooms. Chaga mushrooms have actually been shown to have potential in supporting the immune system in peer reviewed studies. I've been drinking Four Sigmatic coffee a lot lately. It actually doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. It just tastes like any delicious coffee, but it's really easy on my stomach. Doesn't give me any jittery feeling or a midday crash. And they have over 20,000 five star reviews. And best of all, if you don't love it, you'll get 100 percent of your money back because they stand behind their product. You've got nothing to lose by giving it a try. 
Four Sigmatic is giving my audience up to 40% off and free shipping when you go to foursigmatic.com slash Pacman. That's F O U R S I G M A T I C dot com slash P A K M A N. The link is also in the podcast notes for this episode. One of our sponsors today is Lucy, and they are giving my audience 20% off. Lucy is a company founded by Caltech scientists with only one mission, which is to help people quit smoking and vaping by offering a clean, affordable nicotine alternative. Now, many of you know, you've heard the stories. I've known several people in my life who have struggled with quitting smoking. I've seen how difficult it can be. And nicotine alternatives can be hugely helpful. Lucy offers a nicotine gum in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon and pomegranate. They also have lozenges which come in cherry ice flavor. Lucy is affordable. It'll ship right to your door. You don't have to go out to the store. Shipping is always free. You can buy single boxes or save with a subscription. It's the year 2020. It's time to throw the cigarettes away and get rid of the vape. And Lucy can make it easier. You'll find a ton of excellent reviews online from countless people who have used Lucy to quit smoking and vaping. Go check them out at Lucy.co. That's L U C Y dot co. The URL is in the podcast notes, and you will get 20% off when you use the coupon code Pacman. Quick disclaimer I'm required to give these products contain nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Let's get into audience questions for the week. Our first post Trump set of questions in the Joe Biden era. There's something in the air that's just seeming a little different, uh, but let's get right into it. And a lot of these questions really go to sort of seeking to understand where we are as a country right now. And I, I think that these all tie together very well. The first one is, David, now with Trump in the rear view, how did Trump change the country and how did he not? And, and I think this is really the perfect question to start to understand what happened. Uh, Donald Trump did not, as as near as I can tell, create racists or racism create xenophobes who want to stop immigration from so-called asshole countries. What he did was he coalesced these groups of people and he made them more comfortable being public about it. The things that used to be whispered behind closed doors by people who had some sense that while this is what I believe, I recognize I'll probably be looked down upon in most circles if I say it out loud, they were welcomed into saying these things out loud. But it's important to understand that that is a change, not cha not creating racism, maybe an area where there was not a change under Trump. But the racism being more open is a change under Donald Trump. And along those lines, the changes we really saw under Trump include, of course, degrading the public discourse, degrading what counts as acceptable political debate and what counts as acceptable in a political campaign in terms of particular types of insults, not only about your political opponents, but, you know, ridiculing disabilities, ridiculing uh, deceased members of the military. There was nothing beyond the pale 
it was beyond the pale that there was nothing that Trump saw as off the table, I think better said in terms of what and how you can criticize others. And the change Trump made, and we'll see if it gets changed again, but it could be an irreversible change. Trump removed whatever was left of the idea of American exceptionalism. We really sucked during the last four years in ways that many Americans wrongly, but many Americans previously thought would only happen in other countries or only happened in other countries. And it turns out that what we learned is that the United States is just like any other place. Really terrible, corrupt people can get into power. That corruption and weaponization can get into law enforcement. It can get into the military. It can get into all aspects of government. It can interfere with science. It can infect even, you know, NASA and all of these other things. And that is a change. Now, the things that didn't change during Trump's presidency are also cause for concern. What do I mean by that? Well, how did Trump get to be the Republican nominee and ultimately become president? The structure of anti-intellectualism and reactionary politics not based in fact are partially what got Donald Trump into power. That hasn't changed. It's, in fact, I would argue it's worse than ever, and it's been particularly weaponized by the explosion of right wing extreme media like Newsmax and OAN and QAnon stuff and others. Uh, the Electoral College got Trump into power. That hasn't changed. So another Trump could come into power again. I think if there is what is the most important message that could be taken away from the Trump presidency, because there are many um, checks and balances aren't nearly as robust as we thought they were when you have a madman in the White House. Uh, you know, we have all these different takeaways. The most important takeaway now that we're looking forward must be nothing has changed about what got Trump into power in the first place. If anything, it's worse, as we saw by 75 million people voting for Trump in November. And just as easily as Trump got in, I would argue it is even easier for another Trump to get into power. That's the top takeaway. So, yes, fix gerrymandering, get rid of the Electoral College, find a way to democratize the Senate, which is so anti-democratic. You've got to deal with campaign finance put dealing with climate into the law rather than leaving it to the whims of political administrations. There's such a long list of things that have to be done. But if we don't recognize that until we actually deal with the culture that got Trump into a position where he could win the Republican primary and eventually the, the uh, presidency, it could happen again. And that's very, very scary. David, what are the best arguments against democracy? Isn't it just perfect as we eclipse the Trump era that the best argument against democracy is Donald Trump. And, and what I mean by that is this is the platonic argument against democracy left to the masses. The masses often make stupid decisions left to demand to the masses. Lots of ignorant people get to decide this. I'm not coming up with this and I'm not saying this is my perspective or that I want to get rid of democracy. But look at Plato's Republic. Plato viewed democracy. This takes me back to my days in philosophy 101. Plato viewed democracy sort of like a interme a, a liminal look that one up, a liminal phase between oligarchy and tyranny. 
and Plato. And I'm, I'm sort of summarizing from memory here to Plato. Democracy was probably too fond of freedom and equality and indulging people who have no business influencing how a culture, society, economy or country should be run and that there are costs to that. There is no way in full democracy or we don't really even have that in the United States, but in something point pretending to be full democracy to ensure that we have competent administrators and people in power. That's a risk of democracy. Um, there is not enough in most democracies to really crack down on the elites and those in power uh, who are squeezing the average people. We've seen that in American democracy. And the idea of Plato, again, I'm summarizing, was that in democracy, eventually things point to people falling for some kind of strongman that they believe will make things better, but points us in the direction of tyranny. And of course, that's exactly what we saw under Donald Trump. So the the downsides of democracy are the last four years. And it should really be, you know, for a, for a, for many people learning about this stuff. It was here was Plato's idea. And it's sort of like a thought experiment, I guess, although there are there are historical examples of it happening. We have one now in the United States. We've seen the downsides of democracy, which is that ignorant people put an authoritarian buffoon in power and he starts moving us in the direction of authoritarianism. He was a wannabe dictator. Um, now, from a practical standpoint, aside from democracy is good versus bad, one of the flaws uh, of of a of a democracy is that particularly for really large countries, it's tough to come up with a cohesive strategic direction for the country because you have the constant second guessing and flip flopping of power. And this is why when we talk about, well, Trump says he had to do executive orders to undo the bad things Obama did, even though executive orders were bad under Obama, Trump had no choice. And now Biden has to do executive orders to undo the terrible things that Donald Trump did. And there's this constant looming uh, reversal of what is done because of the system we have and because there's always some election looming. I know this is crazy, but the members of Congress in about six months have to start campaigning for reelection for 2022. They get two year terms. And so that that is always there. So a lot of th this now goes beyond the idea of democracy. But when you have a when you have a world in which many of the problems we're trying to solve are more than two year projects or they're more than four year projects. But we have every member of Congress up for reelection every two years and every president up for reelection or a presidential election every four years, senators every six. Uh, you're not really creating circumstances that uh, benefit the longer term issues that we as a as a society, as 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 humans need to deal with. So I am not anti-democracy, but there are arguments against democracy and the best ones all come from what we saw over the last four years. David, who is responsible for the destruction of the Republican Party? The first question is, has the Republican Party been destroyed? It's not clear. Most Trump. Uh, most Republican voters still support Trump. So it remains to be seen. 
However, yes, uh, Trump lost the White House in 2018. Trump's nonsense lost the House for Republicans in 2020. Trump's nonsense lost the Senate for Republicans. So that's true. But I don't think the vast majority of the blame should go to Trump. It's the voters who put Trump in who were radicalized by the right wing media whose influence grows and grows and grows. And it was abetted by the Republican officials who stood by and mostly let let Trump do his thing. So, yes, Trump's actions were bad and Trump's actions are responsible for him losing in 2020. And Trump lost them the House in 2018 and the Senate in 2020. But the real responsibility lies with those who allowed Trump to get in in the first place due to voters who voted for him and Republican elected officials who stood aside and right wing media that chair cheer led the entire thing. And in a way, you can sort of say that this started with the radicalization under Ronald Reagan in the early 1980s. It was accelerated by Newt Gingrich in the mid 90s, who Newt Gingrich really brought in this style of politics that was own the libs. I mean, now that's what it's called. They didn't call it that in the mid 90s. But Newt Gingrich's idea was just obstruct Democrats for the sake of obstruction, uh, oppose Democrats on everything for the sake of opposition. And that's how we went from Nixon, who created the EPA to Jim Inhofe in the Senate holding a snowball, claiming it to be evidence that global warming and climate change aren't something we need to worry about. So there are feedback loops here and it can be hard to say exactly where it started and what's responsible. Trump is hugely guilty for damaging the Republican Party, but Trump doesn't get to be president or even Republican nominee were he not enabled by Republican voters and right wing media. And those are the very same Republicans who now are partially radicalized because Donald Trump's way of thinking about politics was uh, signal boosted by right wing media over the last four years. So when I really think about blame in terms of the future of the Republican Party, which is still a question mark, Trump was and has been exactly who we believed that he was. Now, a lot of right wing voters didn't believe it, but we knew who Trump was. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. He ignored what is his real job and instead lobbed attacks at enemies, didn't do the things he had to do, mishandled every major challenge. And then when he lost eventually, which was the right outcome based on his actions, he blamed everybody else for that as well. And uh, when we say who who is ultimately really responsible, it is Trump, but it's right wing media and it's Republican elected officials who could have stopped this a long time ago. And it's Republican voters as well. Um, and that leads us to what does a rebuilt Republican Party look like? I don't know how the Republican Party comes together to rebuild to the extent that they're now out of power in the House, Senate and White House. How do they rebuild without dealing with the QAnon OAN Newsmax Trumpy wing? I don't know the answer to that, but we have time to look at that. It, it is the beginning of the Biden era. Uh, come Monday, I will have a report for you about has Joe Biden gotten done the things he said were week one and day one priorities. This is a different phase, but we will see what the future of the Republican Party is. Stay with us for the bonus show. Get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com.